Please remain standing and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be reading all of chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is the changeover of the kingdom, finally. Now that Samuel is stepping down, Saul will reign, uh, and we will find soon enough in the later chapters what that means. This is Samuel's farewell address to Israel, his warnings to them. This is, again, 1 Samuel 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. If therefore, right, rather, Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. 
You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside from, for, after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty, and the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Farewell addresses are something of a genre in themselves today. Mostly we have presidents do them, after actually the fashion of our first president, George Washington, who started the tradition. His farewell address is actually fairly profitable for us to read, uh, because the things that Washington warned might come to pass have indeed, and many of them, come to pass in our modern America, much of what he recommends is a timely reminder of what the United States is about. Unfortunately, now, this, uh, this address, this farewell address by the presidents of today are self-aggrandizement sermons, mainly statistics about how their administration has made the U.S. better, all in line with our age of, uh, that is at war with meaning. Although this farewell address is a fixture in American life, the practice is actually far, far more ancient than George Washington. It's the brainchild of a much older culture. We can trace the farewell address actually even further back than Samuel to Moses about three and a half thousand years ago. The whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell address to Israel before his death, which was an extended sermon with the benediction. Samuel continues this tradition in our text in 1 Samuel 12 and shows in much shorter form the very different character of prophetic farewell addresses than our American counterpart. At the end of his reign as judge and at the start of Saul's reign as king, Samuel formally says farewell. These types of farewell addresses are really quite alien to us. They are not self-congratulatory. Rather, they are confrontational They are confrontational, so much so that Samuel even asks his audience a question, and he does not expect them merely to ponder an answer, but to actually give him an answer right then and there. This farewell address in 1 Samuel 12 has no nostalgia in it, no wishful thinking, no self-aggrandizement, but even goes so far as to prosecute a divine lawsuit against Israel for their idolatry. This is not a farewell address, as the words farewell might suggest, this is more like an intervention, a covenant lawsuit against a people who have offended against their holy God. But it is a farewell address in this way. It is Samuel's goodbye to Israel. It's his last speech. This morning, Samuel will go from point to point, building his covenant argument, his case against Israel, giving them nothing and no one to blame but themselves if they were to collapse in the coming years of Saul's kingship. Let's see Samuel's argument. First, we see Samuel eliminate all other sources of blame, focusing squarely upon Israel and their king for the blame of their potential future downfall. First, this is verses 1 through 5. He's eliminating other sources of blame. 
But he begins his covenant intervention by reminding Israel why they're in this situation. In verse 1, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. I didn't do this, Israel, says Samuel. You did this. You sinned against God by making your choice of king rather than waiting for God's king, God's savior. Now, Samuel proves this point by eliminating any other place Israel might find to point the finger of blame. Samuel starts with himself, in fact. Samuel reminds Israel that he is old and that he has a replacement in Saul, King Saul, and that his family will continue through the leadership of his sons, verse 3, where he says, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Which, of course, brings us back to the first parts of Samuel, where he was, even in his infancy, in the temple. And he has reigned uh, probably from the age of 12 up until this point, which reminds us just how long Samuel reigned, possibly something like 50 years or at least 30 years. And Americans find ample reason to hate every president that comes into office, and they only have eight years at maximum. Can we imagine what entrenched grudges we might have if presidents reigned for 50 years? Yet hear the testimony of the people concerning those 50 years of Samuel's asking in verse 4. Israel said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Samuel, even in the eyes of the people, is blameless. And Samuel's blamelessness means he is not to blame, again, for the future downfall which may come to Israel. The fate of a kingdom lies now in Israel's hands. He's pointing this out to them. Samuel also shows in the next section that God is not to blame for their downfall. We'll see this as we go on. We'll do it shortly here. As much as they might fear the nations as well, they are not the reason for their downfall. God had not only saved Israel from Egyptian slavery, but had always saved Israel from their distresses if they had asked. And the oppression of the nations, far from a threat to Israel's existence, as they might consider with Nahash and others, this oppression was the result of Israelite sin and always was thrown out, these nations were thrown out once Israel repented and cried out to Yahweh for help. It's always upon Israel, the blame. And Samuel sets about proving the way that Israel might save themselves from their downfall by showing the ways that God has delivered them in the past and pleading with Israel, Samuel does, that Israel might place their trust in the Lord repent of their sins, and wait upon the Lord's deliverance as they have in the past. Which is our second section. Samuel is pleading with Israel. There are covenant faithfulness. There are covenant promises from a covenant from God that you can go to. Repent and wait upon the Lord. So he pleads in verses 6 through 15. Samuel proves from the past, the past actions of Israel and the past actions of God, what they should do in their own day. That is, repent and wait upon the Lord. Samuel argues this, and he argues like this because he knows, absolutely, as we ought to as well, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Israel of 100 years ago, at this time, 
may be different, but the God of Israel is no different and will always keep his covenant promises. We can use the ways that God has acted in the past to understand how he will act in the present. And what did Israel do in the past? Well, they cried out to God, which is a good thing in their oppression. And God answered with a savior. First, these examples follow a pattern. First, Samuel points out that Israel cried out against Egyptian oppression, and God sent Moses and Aaron and made them dwell in security. Second, Israel forgot God. This is verse 9. To forget God is not simply to forget his name, but what his name means, as we just heard from the Ten Commandments. To forget God is to forget what God's name means, such that we do not fear him, so that Israel fell into idolatry and sin during the years that they forgot the Lord their God. Third, Israel was sold into slavery in each one of these cases. When Israel forgot God, God sold Israel into Sisera's hand first, Judges 4, and then into the Philistine hand, which is several times, Judges 10 and 13 being an example. And then last, Samuel notes that God sold Israel into the hand of Eglon, the king of Moab, in Judges 3. This is a cross-section of the entire book of Judges, and of course, Judges at least in history, was the book before our book, 1 Samuel. It's a cross-section of what the Lord has done with foreign enemies. Samuel is proving what God will do in all cases where we forget him. There will be consequences. This may, in fact, happen in the United States in our own day, if the Lord is not merciful. This is the fourth thing, however. What Samuel is most trying to bring out, not only the consequences, not only forgetting God, and not only that they are sold into slavery, but that fourth, in this state, they cry out to God. Crying out to God in repentance and distress. Samuel is most concerned with what Israel ought to do in such a state as the here and now, where they are being oppressed by those around them, as Nahash may have. What is Israel to do in such a situation as they always ought to have done? Cry out to that same God in repentance and faith and wait upon the Lord for the Savior that he will send. God sent Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, against Baal of Midian. Sent Barak, that is with Deborah, against Sisera of Canaan in Judges 4. Jephthah in Judges 11 against Ammon and Samuel himself, as he says, in 1 Samuel 7, against the Philistines. Samuel speaks of himself in the third person because he knows, as is the case with all of these saviors, the victory is from the Lord, not himself. But notice that no Saul is mentioned. Saul just gave Israel a victory, so they say, in 1 Samuel 11. Had not Israel had a great salvation through him? This shows us part of the purpose of Samuel's argument, to show them what they did wrong, how they forgot God when they asked for Samuel. Samuel says in verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash, a foreign king, come to oppress them, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. You said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. And the Lord your God was your king. Israel's past salvations were of God's power after they repented of Israel's, of, of their sin, after they repented 
and they, had, they cried out unto the Lord, they had salvation from the Lord. By contrast, when Israel appointed Saul, they did so against God's command, without repentance and without waiting upon the Lord, and without waiting upon the Lord's Savior as he would appoint. Saul was the result of an unrepentant cry to Samuel and the Savior, not of God's choosing, but of Israel's choosing. Israel was looking for an earthly Savior, and a Savior's in all the wrong places, as we ourselves do in all, all the time. And in doing so, had sinned greatly against God. Samuel says very pointedly, The Lord your God was your king, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. The Savior, this Savior, Saul, was the Savior of Israel's sin, their sinful choice. Unlike how Israel had responded to oppression in the past, Israel did not go to God in repentance and then wait for his promised deliverance from oppression. In oppression, they are to go to God, cry out to God in repentance, and wait for his Savior. They did not wait, and they did not cry out to God merely to Samuel. And how much like Israel we are in these things. Having sinned against God, we try some other remedy. Having sinned against God, do we go to God for our healing? Or do we lick our own wounds and try to apply our own remedies to our wounds? Samuel is proving to Israel that, and to this morning, all of us, that your wounds can only be healed by God, our Savior. Instead of wasting time, instead of avoiding God, instead of going to our favorite sin after we have sinned, like sexual sin or alcohol or whatever it might be to numb the pain for you, go to God instead, who can alone bind up your wounds and heal you. Go to him in repentance, and he will always accept your plea for deliverance. As God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so Samuel points Israel, as well as us, to do just that. Repent of appointing for themselves a Savior in unbelief and wait upon the Lord's salvation, as they should have done. But it is this waiting that is the problem for Israel. Waiting is very difficult, even today, especially when you see a vast army that is amassing at your borders with Nahash, the Ammonite. The waiting was the problem. They became impatient with the Lord. So instead of going to God in repentance, they sought instead to merely run from the consequences of their actions and find a temporary relief and sinned against God in doing so. But what what ought Israel now to do? Now that they have sinned, now they did not repent or wait upon the Lord, what are they to do? And this is what Samuel tells them next in verses 14 through 15 and onward. The covenant provision For those in distress. So that Samuel sends before Israel, sets before them their covenant options now. Now that they have sinned against God, now that there was no going back from their sin, as Saul certainly is their king, is there any hope for them? Samuel gives them two roads, two possible choices, with two very different destinations in verses 14 through 15. If you will fear the Lord, And serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. The first road and the first end. Second, 
But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. Despite all their sin, God was so merciful that in the first road, if they repented and remained faithful, then God would not punish their grave sin against them. Instead, God promises to Israel, if they do what is right, it will be well with you. Which is quite amazing, considering this is a sin against the almighty, eternal God. On the other hand, if they did not obey God, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. We have here to learn two things. First, even after sin, immediately do what is right. After the sin that the Israelites had done, he does not say, wait a little while, then come back to the Lord. He says, repent now and do what is good. Even with God's promise of the oppression of Saul's kingship in 1 Samuel 8, notice that Israel's actions always matter. It's absolutely true that if Israel did well, then God would reward them. The actions and covenant faithfulness of Israel absolutely matters, just as our actions matter. No state of a Christian is a state where he can say to himself, I am absolutely lost. What matter is it that I continue in doing good because I am beyond saving? Do you see how merciful God is here in the Old Covenant? Even in great sin, Israel's good works matter to God. Your actions matter, brothers and sisters, even after sin, and he calls you to do them. Once you have sinned, it is absolutely wrong to think to yourself, well, I've already sinned so much, might as well continue sinning since I'm here. Once you've sinned, stop and sin no more. Do not wallow in your sin, repent, and then not only repent, but do what is right. Not only stop doing what is wrong, but do what is right, as the Lord calls Israel to do. Do not wallow there, repent, and be confident that your God is merciful. Do not delay as if God must first punish you before you can start doing what is right. Do what's right immediately, and God will reward you. As God tells Israel here, he will reward them even after they have sinned gravely against God. If they do what is right, let us learn even after sin immediately to do what is right. Let us also learn to wait, unlike Israel, who did not wait for a savior. Second, we learn the character of waiting on the Lord, as Israel ought to have waited for the Lord, their savior, rather than making for themselves a king. After repentance, we are called to wait upon the Lord and the Lord's Savior. But waiting is not a passive activity. No, Samuel right here is setting out what waiting looks like, in fact. Fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord. He also says in his waiting, and this is verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and in the right way. He continues to work. Waiting is not a passive activity. Waiting is simply not taking upon our shoulders what we cannot take upon our shoulders and letting God take that upon his shoulders. 
For example, you and I are not called to make the United States repent. We are, however, called to do good for our families, to do good with our neighbors, and to seek to evangelize those that we know, or even those that we do not, praying all the while. But you and I cannot even make one person repent. That is the Holy Spirit's work. When we wait upon the Lord's work in our children, are we idle because we cannot save them? May it never be. Teach your children, brothers and sisters. Pray for them. Be active in love and instruction in their lives. Catechize them. Memorize scripture. And you yourselves be an example of godly husbandry. But this is waiting upon the Lord. It is so simple. Do what is within your power. Seek to do good. Serve God and fear the Lord, as Samuel tells us. Let God be God. And be his fearful son and wait for his work by working hard in everything that is within your power. It can seem like an easy question to identify the things that are beyond our power. But if we believe God controls all things, that doesn't mean that everything is out of our power. That doesn't mean that everything is out of our power, in fact. We need to look no further than our text to see that is not the case. For Samuel pleads with Israel to act. Samuel says they ought to repent, that they can repent, and none of this is to say that we can do anything apart from God, but God expects us to do things, and he will not do them for us. God cannot repent for you, brothers and sisters. God cannot have faith for you. You must do those things on your own as the Holy Spirit empowers you. Even if it is from the Holy Spirit's power, you are called to do them not the Holy Spirit. Some things are within our power, and God calls us to do them. We ought not to be like the man of 2 Kings 6.33, who had great troubles and famine upon him and knew they were from the Lord and said, why should I wait upon him any longer? He was judged for such things. We ought not to just throw off caring about the Lord and attending to what is right when we are in distress, for we must fear. We must expect better. Things which scripture points out as being in our power are 1 Samuel 12. We see in our own case the alleviation of oppression from foreign powers. We often cannot do this and we wait upon the Lord. Or even oppression from internal powers as 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings shows as well. We must wait on the Lord for these things and pray. Psalm 56 gives another the persecution of the wicked upon the Christian. We must wait upon the Lord in these things. We do not have power over foreign powers. We do not have power of the will of wicked people, but the Lord does. Proverbs twenty twenty two also says, In the repayment of evil, do not say, I will repay evil, but wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. We have no right or power in the repayment of evil. We say to the Lord, he will repay. But beware if you do what is evil, or if you are idle and slothful. If you do not repent, if you continue to sin, then there will, as even we see in the case of Israel, be consequences. If you do not heed God's provision for mercy, and if you do not heed God's warnings for punishment, then the great thunderous wrath of God will come upon you. 
God proves this gracious word of mercy and this fiery word of judgment through thunder and rain in the dry season of the wheat harvest in verses 16 through 18. Even when Samuel's argument is absolutely airtight, his covenant argument, God knows that unless we see our sin for what it really is, we see it through its consequences that we will never truly be convicted. God shows us just as much as he showed Israel during that day the great and awesome consequences of our sin. We see it all around us. It was only at this time, the time they saw the odiousness of their sin, that they repented and asked for Samuel to pray for them in verse 19. We ought not to look at our sins merely in an arbitrary manner, brothers and sisters, not merely for their consequences, for its odiousness and the sinfulness of sin. For the consequences indeed show us its sinfulness, but the consequences are not the thing that makes sin, sin. Pray for your servants, says in verse 19, rather, Israel says to Samuel in verse 19, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And for you Christians who continue to sin, that is all of us, Samuel has words of encouragement. He says in verses 20 through 22 that Israel may have these great consequences upon them when they sin, but God will not throw them out of his covenant. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Isn't that interesting? For those in the covenant, there are great and grave consequences. But for those who have faith in the Lord and his Savior, not our Savior, he says, do not be afraid. Even for those still struggling against sin, the repentant who struggle against sin as Israel has just repented. But how can this be? How can there be consequences and mercy? How can God overlook the eternal consequences of our sin? It's because, of course, of the Savior that Israel truly waited for, and we wait for even today in his second coming. The consequences of your sin still lie upon you unless there is a Savior. As Israel repented and waited for a Savior, and Samuel was sent, so the whole world waited for the Savior, prophesied in Genesis 3.15, and he was sent. Now that the Savior has come, what are we to do? We are to continue in active repentance and active waiting. We are to continue in prayer and in teaching. We are not to take upon ourselves things which we cannot do, as if we could be our own saviors, as is the case with the thinking of Israel here. And we are not to ask others like Saul to do what only God can do. We are in the difficult position of Israel at this point, waiting as Nahash amasses at their borders. We wonder where Christ is, who has promised to come back and save us from our sins, Satan and the worldly Nahash. They crash their shields and rattle their spears, and we wonder what the Lord is doing as it seems evil encroaches upon what is good. The Lord is not idle, brothers and sisters, nor is he deaf. He hears and is always providing for us, even as we sin.
He has provided for us far more than we can ask or think in Jesus Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We must wait for the Lord and not create our new saviors like Israel created Saul and their own idea of salvation. We will find the consequences of that foolish action. But we must wait for the Lord and not grow weary of the promises like Sarah grew anxious in her old age that she might not bear the promised son and gave her concubine to Abraham and created consequences for that sin which still touch us today. Instead, wait for the Lord. He will indeed fulfill his promises. We must wait for him, for he has already bought our salvation in Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of our sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair from my head can fall without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. We do not say these words in vain. We repent. We wait. We do not wait for our Savior in vain. For he not only has sent saviors in the past, as he promised, but has promised to come in the future. And he has always sent a savior for those who cry out. And that is who we are, Christians. Those who cry out in our sin. And he will send Christ, his savior. Do not fear men, but fear the Lord, even as we sin. He is coming. Let us wait for him in fear. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Lord, our great God. We ask that we would not sin against you by ceasing to pray for your people. We ask, Lord, that we would not cease in doing what is good, that even after sin, that we would repent and we would actively wait. Lord, in in each of our situations, our offices, we ask, Lord, that we would fulfill our duties, but we pray, Lord, especially that you would make us to repent that you would make us to see, as you made Israel to see, the consequences and the odiousness of sin. We ask, Lord, that in our waiting, we would look to you in trust, that we would wait for Christ, that we would not worry about the distressing things of this world. Lord, knowing that you love us, care for us, we ask, Lord, that you would remind us of the work of Christ in these days. Lord, even as the sinful people around us crash their spears against their their shields. Lord, as they hate us, as they jeer at us, as they mock at us, and as they seem like they might encroach even upon your truth and stamp it out in the world, Lord, we know that you are powerful, that you will always save us, that your word always proves true. We pray, Lord, that you would give us trust, that you would assure us, Lord, that we would see your promises come true before us and that we would worship you. Lord, we pray that we would fear you as we ought, that you would come soon. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.